Which part of the which part of the outline? The feels like the outline has kind of gone to shit. We're in a double outline situation. Oh shit! Uh huh. It, it's all good. I figure we're just gonna flow together. We're gonna flow. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be fucking baller. Welcome everyone to the latest greatest episode of the Network Age. I'm here as usual with my co-hosts Nilrun Mardux and Timluk Miptev. But today we have an extra special guest from Assembly Capital. Bitmap Fastwine. Bitmap, how are you doing today? Bickle, we already discussed this. It's Fastwin. Fastwin, that's right. I'm, I'm Bickle now. Bickle with, uh, rhymes with pickle. Uh, you're, you're in Austin. How's, uh, <laughs> is it nice and hot there? Is it nice and warm? No, it's cooled down. It's like that perfect time of the year. Um, I was actually up in Dallas, like looking at real estate yesterday, and it's like every space just seemed amazing because it's just like that perfect temperature it's sunny it's it's the time to be in texas i don't really want to do weather talk but i actually like moved i lived in austin for a bit and i moved there in like october actually pretty much exactly this time and my impression of the niceness of the weather was like drastically affected by when i moved there Uh, so i was like horribly misled it's a critical (laughs) time to recruit people to this to this town it's the it's it's the same in Montana now, which is the sort of the Texas of the North. It, uh, you would never know how how horrifying it's going to be in a couple months. But you know, weather aside, I know people come for the weather talk, but they stay for the urban and crypto talk. So uh, Bitmap, I was uh, wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about uh, Assembly Capital, what you guys are doing, where the idea came from, and uh, what your goal is with it. Yeah, totally. So it's a, you know, we're a venture fund, kind of a hedge fund. Um, We've been doing less of that recently. But, you know, in 2018, basically, my business partner, Murphy Hawkbite, um, Hawkbit, uh, (laughs) myself, there we go, (laughs) started it. um, But really, like, I think it, you know, going back a little bit further, like Ben and I grew up together, we went to a great public school um, here in, you know, Austin, Texas called Westlake and, you know, had a bunch of good, like, you know, educational computer technology resources. And, um, you know, we became, became buddies back then. And, and, and then we both left for school he went to Georgia tech and, and we came back and he, you know, in 2012, he's like, Hey man, you really need to check out this thing called Bitcoin. And so <laughs> he got me into Bitcoin, taught me how private keys work and, I didn't pay too much. It wasn't like he, he was just really being like a genuine nerd, you know, and thought it was cool technology. He was actually started mining it in 2010 in a closet where him and uh, our, our other um, early business partner had an iOS development, uh, development company. And yeah, they were mining Bitcoin in a closet. And uh, so he was just always like kind of had his nose on the pulse of where this technology was going and just like being Texas guys and, you know, we played football and, you know, we all, we all come kind of from a background of entrepreneurs and, and running our own businesses. And so the whole crypto thing just like really fit super well. And then, you know, in 2014, 2015, we were spending a bunch of time down in Baja, um, racing trucks and falling around the Baja 1000 desert race. And like, we would just be out there, you know, uh, and, you know, kind of in the, this open land exploring. And he would be telling me about Ethereum and, you know, the DAO hack and like the future of like what smart contracts and, you know, what law looks like on chain. And I just like had this epiphany, like we were down there, it was this like beautiful scene overlooking the ocean. People are surfing. We're like in the middle of nowhere. There's like 
you know, people there that are like on the run from the FBI, just hanging out in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> Mexico. And, and I was like, this is, th- this is like very clearly the future. Um, I just had a real clear moment and I was like, look, dude, this is a generation once in a generation opportunity. I think we can make a really long-term play here and let's like figure out how to build a business. And so by like 15, 16, um, we were getting into Urbit, you know, we read some of the mold bug stuff. We were like, this is, you know, wild. We, you know, we were re- read some of the patchwork and we really just started to realize like, Hey, there's something that's developing. That's like outside of like, you know, kind of the world that we all came from. Um, that's like super interesting. And like, I think our, our interests were really like pulling us there, not just from a financial perspective, but just from like a spiritual and philosophical perspective. And so, yeah, we basically in 2018, like um, our buddy um, Doppler actually made the introduction to to Galen and was like, hey, we want to participate and buy a large amount of address space. Um, so, you know, we in 2018 put together a deal to buy a couple galaxies in the public sale. And, you know, it was kind of crazy because one, like, Urban is the most difficult project to explain to anyone. And like our investors are like high net worth individuals from Texas primarily who are not really technology (laughs) investors. These are more real estate investors, um, oil and gas uh, guys. And, Mm. but, you know, we went for it. And, um, you know, I think uh, it it was funny because I had no idea how we were going to get it done. And, and um, I, I, I got confirmation that we were going to be able to buy two of them. And then we had 14 days to close. And basically we went and started pitching um, and got that deal done. And it was, it was really wild to this day. Like looking back, I was like that, that was extreme, but we just had this kind of feeling that, that we were onto something and it was, it was worth the risk. And so, you know, we made a couple more investments. We bought another um, galaxy. Um, we invested and bought a bunch of numerator tokens, a cool project called Nubrive that's run by Richard Crave. We met at an urban meetup and then we made some good trades in, in 2018, uh, 2019 in the bear market. Um, and by 2020, we were in DeFi summer and we had a good track record. And so that we kind of got off to the races um, at that point. But uh, that's, that's a little bit of the background. This brings up a few questions in my mind right away, which is, well, so first of all, you mentioned that you guys were reading... Um, you know, Moldbug says about patchwork. And the only thing I, I note there is, because I've, I've read those, is that... Um, those um, don't deal with crypto at all or envision it. And in fact, like, you know, on Curtis's blog, um, he was, you know, fairly sort of either negative towards Bitcoin or thought it wouldn't work. So I'm, I'm curious whether, is it is it the case that in your mind you saw Urbit, you saw Patchwork, and you connected that to crypto? Or was that a later connection that you made in 2018? Yeah, I think that was more of a later connection. I mean, we understood that you could, you know, using, you know, a blockchain essentially create new ways of creating like, you know, new types of institutions, but we hadn't tied it all together. And that's the beautiful thing I think about being involved in Urbit and like in particular, like a lot of Curtis's vision, like you can be in this project for many years, you know, five, 10 years, and you discover more and more and more. It it ages really nicely like that. And you just get to continually have these insights. And that's a big part of the reason I stick around. And when you say his vision in this case, it sounds like you mean specifically the idea of like kind of multiple competing sort of city state, like crypto based city states, a lot like, I mean, what Bellagio has been slinging out there recently to some to some degree. Yeah, I mean, he was just so early, right? I mean, he started working on Knock in 2003 and then writing about Patchwork in 2008, which was just like, you know, 10 years before really anyone was was talking about this stuff. 
Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And, and where do you think, like, how have you seen that develop since 2008 to today? I know you've, I think you've brought property in Costa Rica. Um, you've made, have you made bets kind of in line with the sort of patchwork view? How do you see that progressing? Yeah, totally. Well, so it's like, it, it's still largely like the way we talk about like, you know, network states, it's like still somewhat abstract. And like, I'm a very practical thinker. And like, you know, um, for me, it's just like, I see what I see that there's something really big happening. There's this big shift. And like, as you know, the people's source of income and geography gets separated, we know that that creates some really interesting um, competitive dynamics. And so, you know, I just, I saw a bunch of people moving to Austin during the pandemic and I was in Austin thinking, well, what's Mm. my, what would my next move be? And it was like, I very much, you know, went through a calculus and it was like Latin America is really interesting for a lot of reasons. Mm. And so I just kind of like followed my intuition and, and went down to Costa Rica and was like, okay, there's something here now. Like, is Costa Rica really the frontier? Is that the place to build a network state? Like, I'm not really convinced of that, but like, rather than thinking too much about it, I'm just like, I typically kind of dive in head first um, and get my hands dirty. Yeah, I'm curious kind of what in particular bitmap, like what values you're looking to see, because it seems like you're fairly ideologically motivated. So what, what's sort of missing from, say, Austin, Texas? What, what drives you to look hmm. at Costa Rica or Latin America? What's the underlying kind of motivation? Yeah, well, I think it's just, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Texas bull still. And, you know, I don't, I, I try not to focus too much on like U.S. federal politics. I mean, they're kind of a disaster. Um, mm. And in general, we're, see, we're seeing somewhat of this like total collapse of like state capacity. And especially at the level of like cities. And I'm an Austin guy and I don't really want to leave Austin, but like I, I can see that path. So to me, you know, I'm, I'm looking for, you know, where is a place that has, you know, high quality of standard living, good people. I mean, I'm not particularly looking for a particular religious point of view, but when you have a place that's like, for instance, majority Christian, that allows for a lot of like social stability and trust, which I see like Mm -hmm. even in Austin to some degrees, uh, to some degree um, is weakening. And so, you know, I look like kind of base level for that. And then, you know, that that's what got me so excited about El Salvador was that we immediately jumped in, right? We're able to begin to have conversations with the government there and actually have, you know, um, some sort of, uh, yeah, let's just say like, I don't know if it's a role or what, but ability to influence. Whereas in, in, in Texas and in the United States, you just really don't have that. We're really too small a fish. Yeah. And kind of talking about that, that role of the government, um, what sort of, I mean, it's kind of crazy just like looking back how quickly it's, it's been possible to get a jurisdiction where you can issue tokens from. That, that's what really shocked me um, was that. And I'm, I'm kind of curious I guess overall, like, what, what are you looking for abroad? Is it to be able to domicile businesses? Is it to live? Man, I think, well, so, well, so a lot of it is just like, I'm in it to, to like build this with y'all, you know? And it, it it's, <laughs> Hell yeah. it's, yeah, no. And it's like, I don't, I don't have the complete vision, you know? And that's why I love the Network Age podcast. And I love riffing with y'all and being around y'all because, you know, I think y'all have, you know, are really in particular have a skill set of like understanding how this is going to play out. And like, 
I'm there to lead in the capacity I can lead. I'm there to follow in the capacity that it makes sense and support. Um, And so I'm more looking at like, hey, where are the smart, where are the smart people focusing? Like where, where's my intuition? Okay, Latin America. Okay. You know, now I'm working with Nil Run and, and Tim Luck and their dad and it's in El Salvador. And it, it just seems, it just has a feeling of being right at this point in time. Yeah, I think that's uh, super interesting what you're saying about sort of looking for a way to find your role in like the next the next phase in the network age and uh, evaluating your skill sets and saying, all right, how do I apply this to create a future that I'm interested in, interested in, even if I don't fully, you know, understand exactly where it's going, I want to be there to help explore it and create it um, in the way that I see. So I, I, it seems like some of what you're saying, I'm almost picturing you as like a um like a tech or network age medici (laughs) i don't know if that's like the right way to phrase it but identifying trends and finding a way because a lot of this you're doing with like capital that either you have or you're raising and then putting that towards things that you find valuable or interesting i don't know if you find that that comparison at all uh accurate well, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> might be a little bit hyperbole in the since the the Medici's are obviously a, a fantastic reference there. But you know, like one of my criticisms of venture capital in general is, you know, most venture capitalists do not appear to have a strong vision for what they want the future to look like. Like they may mm. have, you know, and and Teal talks about a you know kind of definite optimism. But like, mm-hmm. I don't even think he has that definite view of the future. Like, I have a really definite view of the future. He in the does. Way that I want. He, he wants. He wants lots of atoms. Like, he wants he, he atoms wants to, to be move. Able to suck baby blood and uh, live well, the, yeah, that too. No, no, but I think I think there's there's a point in that, which is that I think some of I think venture capitalists either fall into this very like wishy washy thing where they're kind of like going to just like they, they are essentially the same as like people in finance where they're just going to kind of roll with the tides and see where the money is or they fall into something more like teal which is probably like they they just bash their head against the wall of atoms and they really want those flying cars and baby blood um and I think it <laughs> Uh, yeah, it makes it like somewhat less compelling in my opinion, but it sounds like, I mean, we could get it, we could get into that somewhat, but it would be interesting if, I, I'm just curious, like when you interact with venture capitalists, which I know is pretty often since I work with you on some stuff, do you find like either a big mismatch or if they think you're like kind of too naive um, and just like idealistic or how, how does that interaction generally go? Yeah, I think for most of the time, I think up until very recently, you know, probably not even on most people's radar. And then kind of overnight in the last like three or four months, I think people as we've gone into this bear market and people realize like, I'm just looking at the same deals every day. This is like kind of all the same stuff on new chains. Like what is the next big thing to happen? And like, you know, we saw in 2018, we believed it was going to be Irvit. And then that, and then, and now that's starting to play out. And so, look, I think we have some credibility within Irvit. I don't know that outside of that yet that we do, I don't, you know, kind of care too much either way. 
You know, it's quite interesting how you were very early to Urbit. I mean, a lot of VCs got into Urbit around the same time, but you didn't just invest, you know, by one galaxy. You also built out, what, Urbit Live, you invested in Ookbar, you've invested in Holium. Like, you've done, you've not just, like, done the sort of VC thing where I want to have a little bit of exposure to Urbit because I think it might have potential. Like, can you go into how you kind of went from, I think Urbit will win, to those past four years and what you've invested in, why? Yeah, totally. Well, so like at, at at our core, like, you know, Murphy and I are both builders and like, look, we love investing, but investing is a way for us to be, to step into this flow and this like new current that's emerging and like participate. And there's a need in Urbit for capital. And that was a really big need a couple of years ago. I mean, we're the only people that were really buying galaxies, buying address space and mm. investing in companies. And so that met a very specific need. And like assembly capital may not exist for 20 years. We're not in it to like scale some massive, you know, asset management company or, or venture firm. We're here to like build the future and be a part of that. And like we, I, in 2019, when, when the PKI launched on Azimuth, Ben hit me up one night. I still remember it was like a Thursday night. He's like, hey, dude, I bought the domain Urbit Live and I'm going to build a planet market and a network explorer. And I was like, hell yeah, dude, like, let's do that. Let's do this together. And we raised a little bit of money and we started selling planets. And there was like, there was nothing to do on Urbit if you, if you didn't work at Talon and like, mm-hmm. look, I, I'm, I'm like, you know, Tim, I've never had a real job, so I'm not going to go work at Talon. <laughs> so we did the only thing we know how to do, which is just like, you know build a company and start having fun. Ironically, I I have had a real job and real jobs, just not in tech. And I actually like, we'll do that backstory sometime with me and Bitchell and like our, our connection in like the wild world. You were kind of my boss, kind of. Yeah. Dude, it sounds so much better that way though, Tim. Oh, it it does. Except, except that the actual. being your boss. He, yeah, he, um, that's, that's sort of, we should do like sort of a bonus B-side sometime about Bitchell and I's like life in (laughs) the wild, the wild world of like South Korean academic consulting. It's uh, Mm a, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of good, I mean, you've actually written, started to write a book about it, Bitchell, in which I'm like, I don't know, very, not, not super multidimensionally portrayed. One day we'll have your, your character out there. Yeah. All the evil secrets. Yeah, it was, yeah, exactly. Um, well, so Bitmap, this brings up like a question for me though, which is that, I know you were like super early in going that all in on Urbit. We can, of course, we can list off the names of the VCs who were also early, but you guys kept doubling down. Do you think that financially and sort of influence wise, that earliness has helped you? Or do you sometimes look at it and you're like, you know what? Like these VCs who are all who are all jumping in in 2022 and kind of get Urbit now, they're in a better spot because they can get similar valuations to what I do, um, and they can. But like you know, they don't have to like take that much risk or have like you know all those years of sort of f- figuring out what Urbit narratives even were, or what was going on with the project. Yeah, great question. So from a pure like investing in address space perspective, like we could have come in much later and, you know, had a bunch, you know, much better return on our capital um, if you take, you know, the value of of time. And so but to 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 answer your question is absolutely like it was worth getting in five years ago. The cool thing about Urbit is like Urbit seeks to be a hundred year computer. And so it's a really long term project. And so you can actually play really long term games on Urbit and you can compound Mm. social, 
you know, relationships. And so, you know, in 2018, we went to Urbit Escape and like, that's where I started to build some really important relationships in particular with Galen and the core developers. And, you know, in something, you know, that like Urbit, where it did for so long, for 10 years, it was just this tiny, tight community. Like it takes time and it takes FaceTime to build those relationships. And so now we're coming in and like, you know, we, there's, it's just such a huge advantage to be deeply tied in and connected to these people that control the network that are building the network that like, you know, no, no, not at all any regrets on timing. Can you give just a couple of concrete examples of what you see as the like either financial or like social deal flow benefits of having been early? Well, it's just like, look, we we kind of, you know, came in as 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 somewhat as outsiders. And I think there was like a little bit of skepticism when we watched Urbit Live. Like, I think, you know, Galen and those guys were like, hey, what are you know, kind of what are these guys up to? Were you the first person? And over time that that just sort of disappeared where where I think like if you it just became the case that if you wanted to raise money on Urbit, like we were the kind of guys to do it. And we were guys that were kind of doing it in a cowboy way. There wasn't much bureaucracy. There wasn't much oversight. And we just wanted to do deals. And so I think, you know, and through that and like, you know, basically once a year, every year coming together with the people that are building Urbe and the core developers in Talon, you that's what really facilitates like that level of trust. And they're not being inherent skepticism where I think like a lot of, you know, new, look, one of the coolest things about Urbit is that your stat, your your clout and your status is based on how much you contribute to the protocol. And so when you come mm-hmm. in with a big name, a big VC name, it doesn't necessarily do a lot for you. What what does is just like time with the with the homies, you know, building. Mm. And how is that progressed over time? Like, you know, originally it was just Talon when you joined. You've, of course, did Urbit Live. And then you, I mean, this most recent assembly was really featuring a lot of your portfolio companies, right? Holium, Ukbar. I mean, Ukbar made a huge splash, as did Holium. Can you kind of talk about, like, what's been the reaction to that as it moved from Talon to kind of this ecosystem? How has that been from Assembly's perspective? It's It's been totally it's, it's been really interesting and it's been cool to see. And like, you know, there was frustrations early on. And one of the big things Tim Luck really, you know, like encouraged me on was like, Hey, instead of getting frustrated, just like go and build stuff, go and execute. Mm -hmm. And he was totally right. And that's something like anyone, whether you're a Senator or you just want to participate in the network, you know, you just go and you build and that's how you, you know, get to have an, have impact. And so what, what was the, the original question you wanted me to answer? It was around like how sort of Talon or Urbit more generally has sort of shifted as these ecosystem companies have developed and kind of launched. Well, I mean, it's like a huge question, right? Because Talon has a vast majority of the address space. And so I think like originally the way, you know, Curtis conceived of it, like Talon would basically build the products and, Mm. you know, some investors and early contributors would get a lot of the upside in the address space. I don't know that he really had conceived of a true like kind of, you know, bizarre, so to speak, to use his term of a lot of different competing product companies, but it's just turned out kind of evolved that way. And so to see how that dynamic's going to play out is like super interesting, um, you know, raises a lot of questions on should, should I buy address space? Should I try to, you know, buy equity in early stage companies? Like, should I be trying to invest in Talon? 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's been totally cool to see now, like a lot of the companies that we funded a year ago, two years ago, you know, starting to ship products and potentially have some viable businesses. Mm. I think, uh, something that I'm curious about as someone who is so early to Urbit is whether or not the, um, growth of Urbit and explosion of interest in Urbit has, validated your early theses about why Urbit would succeed or why it's valuable mm. or whether or not your your theses have changed because you know Urbit's really been getting a ton of press lately I feel like every other week there's a new article in some like hip literary magazine or something that says hey I spent a, I spent a week with the Martians and so now seeing seeing that press seeing that ecosystem development is your is your understanding the same? Like, yes, it's happening as I expected, or do you have a, a new understanding of why Urban is is going to win? Well, so w- regarding all this hype and interest, it's like, dude, the truth is we have so much work to do. And, like, we, we haven't won. Um, we're not where we need to be. And it's great to, like, see all of that, but, you know, we are not yet on that part of, you know, the J-curve where we're mm-hmm. seeing that explosive growth. And so, you know, like... Urbit has definitely taken longer than I than I expected. And the truth is, is like, even though in some ways we feel like, okay, we were like starting to arrive like assembly 2022, like I still like we are, we, we still have so much work to do. Well, like, so Bitchell and I see a lot of different types of inbound interest. And it's actually funny when he mentions seeing the, like all this stuff, because I remember when I was uh, pitching him on Urbit, it would have been early February. Uh, and it was like definitely like I had to explain it. It seemed there wasn't that much material. What there was was mostly about how it was like Curtis's project or something. Um, and I think Mitchell can confirm that like sort of the type of attention and like the inbound and the sort of awareness has like drastically increased and drastically 100%. changed. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, and I, I think it also is like sort of validated a lot of the you know narratives I was pitching then. But that goes back to he mentioned you know, these sort of media things about how, I don't know, like I'm an urban girl who spent a week with the Martians or whatever, right? Whatever, whatever the hell that is. Or or like, or we have alternately, um, you know, people who are at DEF CON right now, because we're recording this on October 14th, where people are down in Bogota. And people in like like ETH core devs know what Urbit is and are thinking of like taking Hoon School. Um, so I was gonna, it's I guess wild. like I, yeah, it's it's just like insane in terms of where we're at and where I think it can go. But my question for Bitmap is, if you could have your sort of given that we haven't won yet and that all this interest doesn't mean we've earned anything, if you could have your ideal form of interest or like maybe if one person in the world could get you know Urbit pilled, uh, who would that be? Because I think that'll give us a sense of like the kind of uh, st- what you're sort of targeting and what you think is important for us to grow. Like, who's the per- who's your ideal one or two people to like get Urbit pilled on the planet? Yeah, totally. Well, so I want want y'all's feedback on this and like you know I'm develop I have this undeveloped hypothesis basically like the and this just c- comes from empirically watching developers build apps on Urbit, which has just been starting to happen, but. I like it seems to me and and in particular at assembly capital, you know, um, we've got a guy that, that works for us named Tim and he's the guy that built radio app and he built that thing. And like, Oh, Tim works, Tim works for you guys. Like, cause he hit me up the other day. So I, 
I actually just, well, this is sort of, uh, for listeners, like sort of an impromptu, like name game thing, but yeah, I onboarded Tim to Urbit when I was, uh, the technical director for the foundation. I thought he was a very talented programmer. He was in some of my communities and, um, yeah, he just sort of resurfaced with that. I didn't know you guys had hired him to do that. That's very cool. Yeah. Well, we, we met him through that old group that you used to have and that's how he, he found that job. Yeah, exactly. And so, but my point is, is like he built, he coded that up at assembly in a morning and then he spent like two weeks doing the front end because he's not very good at JavaScript. Mm -hmm. And so in like a very short period of time, he was able to build a really important piece of software, not because radio itself is the killer app, but it's the beginning of showing, I think like some, you know, the really interesting things that Urbit enables. Mm -hmm. And like when I look at, you know, a lot of the people that are completing grants and how long it's taking and what they're building, like, I'm really convinced that, you know, look, we need to get, you know, sc- scaling up the number of urban developers is great. But I think what we really like, what we really want and need right now are like these 10x type developers that just bring huge, high leverage um, impact. And so those are the people that like I'm narrowing more and more in on, like less concerned about getting to a thousand total Hooners, but like, who are the 50 like kind of world-class high impact devs in particular, the ones that are interested about in building apps and have good product instinct? Yeah. So on that front, kind of how have you been pulling them in? Like how, how did Tim get pulled in um, to Assembly Capital? And then also curious about just the story with Trent, right? Because um, like how, like I noticed Trent was sort of, he had mentioned watching um, Urbit for a long time for about a year and not that convinced. And then I think you brought him down to Costa Rica. Is that right? So how, how have you been pulling in these devs? Yeah. Well, so, well, Tim wants me to answer his question, but I'll give him a, a, a chance to circle back on that. So how do I find the devs? I hang out on Urban. Like I'm, hmm. you know, I, I hang out in chats. I ask questions. I see new people come in. I ask them if they've got a GitHub repo. If I don't understand hmm. what's going on, I send it to Ben and literally just have like, I do that more than anyone and I do it with address space and I, you know, hang out in the marketplace and you just basically use Urbit and you find the people that, that are, are filtering, you know, onto Urbit. And then you, you, you try to be there to, to figure out a home form, whether it's one of our portfolio companies or not. I just want smart people like able to contribute to the project. Well, so before I get back to my question about your dream guy or girl to find out about Urbit, I'm curious, like, because, you know, we've both been through some different cycles of Urbit socializing. And do you think that the current sort of state of Urbit groups, public fora for discovering people is okay right now? Do you think, or do you think like that we need sort of either new software or new conventions to get to like kind of up your pipeline there? Yeah, I think we got to up the pipeline. I mean, right? I think groups like right now are, yes. are pretty pretty stale. You know, it's mm-hmm. like this mm-hmm. is what we're focusing a lot on with with Holium and and radio is like the first example of this. But this idea of like presence as a primitive or a way of understanding like when I'm hanging out online digitally, like who am I with? You know, who is actually Based. there participating? And you know. Trent's got a lot of cool stuff in particular, you know, he's got his spaces, but is also um, this idea of rooms where essentially any application that you want to run on Urbit will always have the ability to be inherently social, to have video and voice communication, but also shared cursor. And so you just begin to create this feeling of like co-presence together that I think is going to be the key unlock for Urbit and the, you know, the killer app. 
So then I just want to circle you back to, like, given, so that's kind of addressing the back end of the funnel, and it's really cool that Holium is working on that, and I can kind of see, you know, your guys' influence there and how you're kind of dogfooding that. And so then if we go back to the front end of the funnel, who's the ideal, like, one or two people to get Urbit pilled if you could wave your, like, you know, magic, like, twinkle wand? Dude, they're on the they're on this podcast with me right now. I mean, it's like no, nah, I need more people, have, man. I'm already uh, here. This is the well, choir. Like, well, we need I know, to but this the is choir. the beginning of kind of the defection that you want to see, where people are like, "Hey, mm. I'm tired of putting my energy, my time, my money to like this system where like you know ownership is like very narrowly distributed. This doesn't really seem to serve me and my communities. And like, where can I put my time and energy? And we need more." that can't just be, you know, that can't just be like kind of antisocial types. Like we need Mm -hmm. people that have some training on how to build businesses, how to raise money, you know, you know, people that come more from that world that we all experienced when we were at Harvard, but that are now willing and interested in coming over and bringing their skill sets. Like we need, we need better product people. We need better executives operations. Like there's, there's yeah. a lot of good developers, but there's not a, you know, those other skill sets we're currently lacking. And so I think a lot about that. Okay. So you accidentally let it drop that this is an R, I think our first all Harvard pod, we can probably like arrange another one at some point, but from years ranging from 06 to 13. Well, whatever we don't have a guess. <laughs> well, right. Whenever it's just us, it is. But our, our, whenever we don't have a guest, e- exactly. But we we can pretend in those cases. So let's like use that as a really smooth seg into kind of because I know Bitmap, you did graduate Harvard, though, although I think you transferred there partway through. Can you just give us some of your background in terms of education life? Because we kind of just threw you in here for the recent part, and we kind of want people to get a better idea of who you are. Yeah, totally. Well, so I played, you know, college football. I had like a very like all American like high school upbringing. Friday night lights, the whole thing. What um, what position did you play? I played uh, tight end and, and wide receiver, and at a really good school. You know, our schools like over the years won many state championships, and so I was really part of that culture, and it was a big part of my identity. And I end up going getting a scholarship to, to Harvard. I originally, I mean, a scholarship to Duke. I wanted to go to Yale, hmm. but Duke offered me a scholarship. And then we lost 11 out of 11 games. And I was like, this isn't going to work Ooh. for me. So, so um, you go to so, the big football powerhouse of, of Harvard. <laughs> Duke. It's yeah, good so in the I, Ivy League, man. It's it's yeah. good in the yeah. Ivy League. Look, in like you the other schools like Princeton and Yale didn't accept transfers, so I I decided mm. to transfer to Harvard. And I always like kind of thought like, man, you know, I had this kind of chip on my shoulder about Harvard. But I actually um really liked it and and what I liked about it was after I left football, you know, so much of my identity was like you're a football player and that really narrowly cast what my potential was. And so my sophomore year I'd have five ankle surgeries. I quit like basically two days after joining the Phoenix and um, I began to like throw myself into social life. And, you know, I, I didn't, wasn't there my freshman year. So I wasn't culturally indoctrinated into, you know, the yard and the houses. I was in Kirkland for a year, but like quickly moved off campus. And I just hung out with the Phoenix and guys at the Phoenix. And I started meeting these people that were like super, super interesting, smart people. And they were partying Mm -hmm. and having a good time. And so I really like went, went deep into that. Um, and yeah, so that was, I, I got into philosophy. I mean, had a really, you know, just natural talent for that. It was easy, easy to write papers. I enjoyed it. And it let me study a lot of different stuff. I took CS 50, um, and did all that, oh, but very cool. you know, yeah. 
so that that was my time at Harvard. Sorry. I can talk a little bit more about. Uh, I don't know. Y'all, y'all direct me. Well, I was just gonna say. I think that's uh, like an. People have a lot of um, ideas about what going to a place like Harvard means, but I think what you were saying about what you found valuable there really <clears throat> intersects with what you were saying about the type of people you think need to get into urbit and to a larger extent this um, developing this network age space is uh, not just um, like really intense developers um, and, and people who spend all their time coding, but people who are touching a lot of different areas who are, you know, working in philosophy, working in business, have some coding knowledge. And I think it's um, telling that you were pulled in all those different directions. And then we're making connections with all with that different sort of people who are high, high level in many different areas. And it's a lot about coordinating and putting ideas together. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the huge advantage of going to a place like Harvard is you just get to expose to like a lot of really smart people from all different walks of life. And like, you know, the Phoenix Club was the most diverse club on campus. And like, it just completely opened my eyes. And it taught me how to build relationships, you know, across Mm. national boundaries and with different people from different backgrounds. And so I think in general, yeah, it's just it it's set up nicely for something like the network age, which like ultimately is like a very kind of global vision, um, you know, for the future and like kind of requires that point of view that's very hard to develop if you, you know, are stuck in some regional kind of experience. I can see that Nilron wants to jump in, but I just wanted to have you expound real quick on what you mean by diversity in this context. Cause I know for like, well, I kind of get an idea of what you might mean coming from Austin, but I also know for people, um, pe- people could react to that very differently as sort of like, uh, you know, diversity usually sounds like this like box sticking thing or sort of corporate, uh, you know, thing at this point, but like, what, what did that actually mean in practice when you say that it was diverse? Man, it was people from all walks of life. I mean, you know, like, you know, former aristocracy from like Southeast Asian countries to people who had like never eaten a steak until they like Mm -hmm. got into the Phoenix and went through the punch process. Like, you know, a lot of the guys from like, and, and some of this is, you know, it's like black men's forum, you know, Latino men's collective, like a lot of those guys to this day are still like my best friends. And that like having, having that and having like this international kind of exposure and everything in between, like you ultimately, it wasn't about color or race. It was like, literally there was just people from so many different backgrounds. And so someone like myself who wants to absorb all that and learn, like can just soak up and like begin to develop a, cause it's all giving you data about how the world really works. And so when you're able to be exposed, you know, to, to that sort of, um, you know, those sort of data feeds, so to speak, it's like really, really advantageous. Yeah, it's interesting. My my ex wife had gone to had started at University of Berkeley in California, that'll, and then she ask. would hang out. Yeah, exactly. She uh, would hang out at Harvard because um, she graduated a semester early and hang out in the dining hall. She was just like saying that exact same thing, like, "Wow, like I'm seeing how the world actually works through <laughs> this very diverse set of people talking and kind of scheming about business, starting companies, etc." So, yeah, just wanted to plus one that it's quite interesting. So Bitmap, I'm, I'm curious then because um, I definitely like sort of wasted a lot of time after Harvard and I probably even got less out of it than you did because I didn't get catastrophically injured enough to quit sports and so did it all the way through. Um, and so, you know, I probably blew like a good, I don't know, six, seven years like after it sort of just wandering around. And I'm curious like, you know, sort of what, uh, what your path was afterwards. Yeah, totally. Well, so to be 
you know, interestingly, like, even though I, you know, I worked so hard to get a college scholarship, go to Duke, like my sister went to Princeton, like, I thought, man, mm-hmm. this is going to make me happy. Being at Duke's going to make me happy. Being at Harvard's going to, and dude, it never did. And then I started mm-hmm. studying philosophy and I got into this, like, you know, this reductionist, like analytical materialist thing kind of falling into nihilism. And I went into a really dark place and I just knew instinctively like that I, what waited for me on the other side of Harvard, there was something much bigger than just joining the like establishment, so to speak. And I knew that, but like I was in a bad place spiritually. So I came back to Austin and dude, I have like, I spent multiple years and the, and the way I dealt with how I felt was with drugs and alcohol. And so mm-hmm. by the time I was like 23, 24, I was, I was really struggling and I started, you know, going to rehab. And, um, finally, by the time I was 26, like I was kind of at the end of my rope. Um, you know, the drugs really weren't working anymore. They weren't solving that like deep down unhappiness that I had really truthfully felt most of my life. And so I went to, um, I ended up going to rehab in Jackson, Mississippi for four months of inpatient and four months of out, outpatient. And it was honestly, it's the best experience I've had in my whole life. I mean, it allowed me to re, you know, reset and to begin to like, I'd mm. always deep down had this, you know, this sense that there's something much deeper to life than what is presented. And that's ultimately like a spiritual thing. And, 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 and recovery really asked me to like, you know, explore that and to begin to like, how do you fill that hole inside of you with something more, you know, spiritual in nature. And, and, and for me, it was, you know, God and a, and a higher power. And so you know, I, dude, I ended up getting a job. I thought like, man, I've got to get like some special job, reco- early recovery job. No one would hire me. I was putting Harvard on my resume. I couldn't get hired at a movie theater, at a grocery Damn. store. And, and so I, I ended up, they were like, dude, you've got to get a job. I'd been like sitting around for like 60 days without a job. And I, they're like, Raising Cane's is hiring. And I was like, dude, fuck, how is Raising Cane's like, you know, God's plan for me? And, but I was like trusted well, in what, it. What is, what is that? This sounds like Some a chicken thing restaurant, I don't dude. know about. You got to go to Raising Cane's. It rocks. It's a southern chicken restaurant that started in Louisiana. And all they did have six menu items, primarily uh, chicken tenders, fried chicken tenders and toast. And oh, I went tendies. into this. Yeah, no, they're, it's, it's one of the best restaurants. It trades at a, a lower cap rate than a McDonald's. Um, and, and so I go in there and like, I don't tell them who I am. I'm just like, look, I need a job. Like I'm at this treatment center and they hire me and I start going in every day and I'm like opening up the kitchen and I'm sweeping the parking lot and I'm, you know, beginning like, dude, I go out there and I realize like all of a sudden, Oh, when I throw a cigarette on the ground, like somebody has to clean that up because like now I'm the guy that's cleaning that up. And all mm. of a sudden, and I'm, I'm doing 12 step and I'm starting to get recovery. Um, And one day I realized like, this is the happiest I've been in my whole life. And like, I'm coming into work and I'm wearing like these shoes that I bought from Walmart that are basically non-slip plastic shoes and like this raising canes outfit, but I'm just living life. And, you know, it was, that was like a huge, huge pivotal moment in my life. And then, you know, from that point, I then had like a much stronger spiritual foundation for who I am. And that's like allowed me to take a lot of risk and to begin to say like, Hey, what's possible here? Hey, do, to be a venture capitalist and to like figure out how to make a huge bet on Urbit, do you need to go work at Goldman Sachs and Andreessen and Horowitz or like, Hey, maybe you're like way more powerful than that. Once you like unlock this inner power that you have, that's you know, ultimately um, been blocked up until this point. Okay, so that leads us to a question that we had written down here because we're trying to put a few pieces together from you going from, um, 
raising canes then to investing, like kind of, and, you know, knowing your background implies like, you know, there was either some like friend or family money or connections involved. And I guess one thing we want to ask is, like, do you think that in order to make a bet on something as risky as Urbit that doesn't pay off for some long, for so long, what do you think were the most critical components of that? Like, do you think it's the kind of thing someone can only do if they have kind of your, I guess we call it like both combination of like rock bottom mentality plus like plus having some connections? No, I mean, like, seriously, like, OK, you know, I've sort of I'm not afraid of stuff. I have nothing to lose. Plus, like, you know, I don't know what your, your and Ben's connections were in terms of like raising money. Um, like, do you think there was something sort of special about that where it just wouldn't have been possible for you to do from another thing? Or do you think that that's sort of unrelated? Yeah, no, no. I, I think it's like a big question whether this is like something that can be replicated um, by by other people or people should like, you know, try to follow my path or something like it's definitely a unique set of circumstances. Um, and look, you have to have some connections. I mean, we were at least able to get introductions to a lot of different investors um, through someone we had, you know, gotten into business with in 2018, who's now like our biggest investor and great business partner. Mm -hmm. So there is like a huge component on that. But still, like, I believe like, if you're a human being, and you have a vision, and you want to bring something into existence in your life, like you can you can figure out how to do that, like more or less. Now, there's like certain level of you know you a Maslow's hierarchy that has to be met, but more or less, like I'm a big believer in like you know your your vision and what's possible is pri primarily almost 100% constrained by like what you believe is possible for yourself. Yeah, and I think that um, raises an interesting question: is like, do you feel that? Um, this work that you're doing with Urbit, Urbit primarily, but in this space has actually solved or maybe not solved, but answered some of those questions for you or addressed what you felt you described as like a, something missing spiritually. Like that, I, and I mean that a hundred percent seriously, like is this providing um, the, the things you were looking for? Yeah, totally. Well, one of the big insights from like 12 step is basically if you're suffering internally, like it is in my belief, it's, it's, it's a problem of self-centeredness. Like if I think about mm. myself all the time and serving myself, I will just become unhappy. And so what 12 step does is, you know, gives you a way of turning towards a higher power, some idea and helping other people. So it's a movement away from self. So the degree to which Urbit, you know, is this like ideal that's like super important to bring into the world that you can throw yourself into, like it is better than me working on saying like working at visa or something and like, you know, climbing the ladder there. It, it, it's definitely better. Now, does it replace actually going out and sitting down with another human and listening to them and trying to help them solve their problems if they want it? And in, in 12 step context, this is taking somebody, you know, through the steps. I don't think it quite solves that, but there is something that's really cool about Urbit that kind of ties the, the recovery to Urbit. It's like, you know, I feel really comfortable when I'm in a 12 step meeting with other people that are like, you know, either recovered or they're trying to recover and they're, they're struggling. Mm -hmm. And like, mm -hmm. these, these are outsiders. These are people that most people look at and they like society's kind of done with them. And like, in some ways, like at least early Urbit was a little bit like that, you know, where it's like a lot of these people, like are people that are basically turning away from society. Like some of them have been canceled. They're not really welcome. And like, those are, those are kind of my people. And like, I'm comfortable. And like, 
I don't put y'all in that category, but like at the same thing time, y'all are all doing very different stuff than most of the people we graduated with. Yeah, I think there was this common thread, right, of sort of disillusionment with the current establishment that I think all of us share on this, right? We're all Harvard people that didn't really do the traditional tract after Harvard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels it feels appropriate that Urbits, I guess we can call you Urbits largest VC, would have this background because it seems to like also fit a lot of the early, you know, the early people here. And what I'm I'm kind of wondering then is how you think that fits into because you're now on the front lines with talking to all the like sort of trad VCs who are kind of getting into it, and also we're kind of starting to see some of the let's call them like the trad builders or the people who like the extent of their anti-establishmentness is that they're like pretty into ETH instead of um, you know doing whatever you know whatever like tech job. And so I'm wondering like, do you feel that? Are you worried about that kind of? killing the vibe like what do you want to be in this sort of network future dude you know what like the what the tornado cash thing like showed me when that happened was there was like a lot of og eth people that came out that i thought like you know didn't really have a really strong point of view and especially towards Mm. like censorship resistance and all of a sudden like it emerged that there was like this core ethos that these people still cared about and these are people that have a a, you know big kind of public following a lot of them Mm -hmm. worked at big firms had big companies and it honestly was really encouraging and like dude the the vcs that are interested in urbit like they're pretty legit vcs they're like if and i say what i mean by legit is like they understand the core ethos of like, you know, crypto and what we're trying to do. And so I'm not currently really concerned about it. So you would say, and this is actually a new perspective for me, although I felt very similar to you did to seeing the tornado cash reaction was really encouraged. And we actually did, you know, an an episode where we said exactly that. Um, I guess what you're saying is that you think there's actually a lot of people who really want this, a lot of talented people, but they sort of either don't know how to say it or where they can go. And you think we need to sort of, you know, be that city on a hill. Well, for sure. And like, look, there's like, this is the thing there's, you've been able to make so much money over the past like five years in crypto. And I think like a lot of people that that came for the right reasons, probably like, you know, they get into building a, a scaling a venture capital business and they're just funding deals and they get a little bit off track. But like, what I'm saying is if you actually like kind of pull away all the BS you, you enter into a bear market. These people now emerge and they're asking good questions about Urbit. They're understanding it. They understand like use cases that are really interesting. And yeah, I mean, I think these are like people that we want to own, you know, part of the network. Well, let me pull back then just from like Urbit itself to talking about this idea of the network age or communities being able to be in different places. Because I know that you have a decent amount of experience also doing sort of physical businesses or stuff in hospitality. Um, And what I'm wondering is for all these people who are seeing that, if we're looking at these places you're looking at in Latin America, let's say maybe El Salvador in particular, but I'm, you know, down with anywhere. Do you think those places can be made good enough for people who have like a high, like, let's say like American people in crypto who have a high lifestyle standard to want to hang out there? And if so, what's the time frame there? Because I think you have a good idea of like what like the high end market wants. Yeah, totally. Well, it's like, man, what we want in modernity is maybe actually not what really serves us. And maybe why this like, you know, this general trend of like, you know, kind of the failure of nation states 
and everything that like underpins that that's like come kind of coming apart at the seams like I, I kind of just like look at it as that there's like an actual opportunity to re-explore what, what do we actually need if you're like a sophisticated crypto person that has done well, that's like relatively introspective, like what do you actually need? And so a lot of what Nilrun and I were working on in El Salvador, we got on Vienna Hypertext, we started, you know, putting together mm-hmm. a lot of boards and building and like really asking the question. And I think like ultimately what we're going to see culturally is a shift towards simplicity. You know, it's like eating real food, being in the sun, like having your feet on the ground. Like, you know, I'm big on zero toe drop, you know, big toe box, you know, shoes. And I think the level of refinement really becomes from simplicity and like being in beautiful places where like whether or not you believe in God or not, like I think deep down, all of us are looking for some deeper thing and, and sense of connection. And that can come from like two primary areas, um, which one is nature and two is community. And like, so Latin America Mm. in particular is really interesting because it's just, it's less developed and the nature is beautiful there. So you take something like that, like my place in Costa Rica, and then you don't don't have to do a lot. And like the thing that Tim was always interested is, is you were like, I don't like AC. Well, dude, you and I are brothers there because like, (laughs) you know, once you finally live without AC in a a decent climate, you begin, you begin to feel so much better and you become so much more in tune. And I just like see this as this movement that like, I'm really interested in exploring. Like, I don't really want to create something that's like, you know, someone that wants to like, you know, live in the pod, um, and then like figure out how to like make them comfortable in South America. Like, I'm interested in like building a new way of living that's like way more harmonious with like our own natural biology with nature. Um, and that like hope hopefully is like, you know, just better for the, the population of this planet without trying to like save the world. Like I, I don't have like the, those kind of aspirations. Like I leave that up to the, the higher power. Yeah. I uh, certainly find a lot of what you said resonates with me and this movement towards, um, simplicity, connection with nature, connection with people. And I think that's really interesting to hear from you because a lot of people, I think, view technology um, and, you know, accelerationism as antithetical to those point of views and is something that when I first became involved in crypto, I was sort of worried about how, you know, my involvement advancing a technology would um, work against those values. And so I'm, I'm curious what you think is the link between technology and what you have said is this more, um, simple humanistic, um, way of living and how those things intersect. Yeah, totally. Well, it's one of those things where like, there's a tension there and I'm not just trying to just like resolve it in some way. I'm, I'm sort of living at a point in my life where I'm like letting it exist. Like I, you know, look, I think you and I like both connect to the mountains and to the rivers. And like, I love Mm -hmm. to fly fish. I love to be outdoors. I love to be completely disconnected. That's where I feel most connected to my maker. Um, and like most grounded at the same time, like I'm an online person. I grew up playing Counter-Strike starting in like 1.3. And that's how I spent most of middle school and, and early high school. Like when all the other guys were going to see like the Harvard, I mean, the, the, you know, um, the football games on Friday nights, I would stay home and play Counter-Strike, you know, and I had a clan and all that. And like, 
I, I really get something out of like just being an online person and hanging out online and doing online things. But I, you know, at the same time, like I also see kind of the pitfalls there. And, and like one of the things that Tim Luck and I were, were talking about, we were talking about this book, book um, The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera. And the, it's like basically this kind of tension between, you know, heaviness and lightness. Lightness is like, you know, being free and spontaneous and do whatever you want. And that's sort of the, the nomad thing. And then the heaviness is like having community and meaning and purpose in a family. And it's like, it's an open question. Like, what are the, how can we introduce these things that, you know, create this heaviness and meaning? Can those be introduced and solved for, you know, digitally? Like, we don't really know what the answer uh, to that is, but it's like a really good open question. So, Bitmap, you mentioned how, you know, in Latin America, it's already naturally beautiful, that the kind of this return to kind of closer to nature, that we don't really need to rebuild, say, the New York pod when we kind of start building from scratch. Um, what, like, how hard do you think it is to build new communities, say, a new town, a new city um, in Latin America from scratch? You've had some experience building in Costa Rica, I know. So can you talk about that and what it's been like? I, I think it's a hard problem to go after. And that's why it's like partially so interesting to me. And like when I think about, you know, the things that I've learned, you know, and why do I spend time doing hospitality? Why do I mm. spend time building buildings, doing construction, you know, real estate, all this Adam stuff that we know, like can be like this huge drag. And like, you know, I think, you know, the network age problem of how do I build a community from scratch, if you think that's like a formulation of it is it's it, it, it is like the confluence of everything that we are talking about and like a lot of my interests where it's like very cultural, it's architectural, it's like you need to understand like how people want to live, like what makes an individual healthy, like what satisfies somebody spiritually, how do you bind a community together through practice or religion um, and I think it's a huge question whether or not you can start that from scratch. I, I know Galen, like in particular, and I've had a lot of conversations and like, he's got a pretty healthy skepticism about that. And I think that's appropriate, but like, I think we've got to try and figure it out. And like, I don't know, I just, I, I think you kind of, the, the way you approach it though, is not the way I would approach the way I'm going to approach it is like just starting really small. Like, Hey, can I get like five to 10 families like to live together? Let's get enough land so that we could expand. And then like, let's see what happens. Like I, you know, and, and, and I say that then at the same time, like it sounds like what's going on in prosper is pretty interesting. Like I know, you know, Liam and Jake were just down there and like had a lot of really good mm. things to say. So like, there's two different ways you can go top down, you can go bottom up, but I'm just more of like a bottom, you know, a, 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 a a guy that likes to build from the ground. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. And it's something, you know, it'd be interesting to loop you into this kind of volcano project that we've been talking about in El Salvador. But I think there's this broader question I'm curious about, like, Tim and Bitchell's view, like, because it seems like you could today pull five to 10 families or individuals together into an area. Um, do you think that's like enough of sort of a seed to then grow into, you know, a village, a town, or does it need to be say like the Praxis approach where it's like 10,000 people, big number at once? Do you think it should be built kind of on the frontier or more in New York and then transported over? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I mean, from my perspective, like 
practice, what practice is doing is like already happening naturally on Urbit as like a byproduct of some other thing. So we have the advantage of like not needing to raise a bunch of money and then like make this concerted effort to build this strong network. Like we have this strong network and it's getting stronger. Mm. And so that's actually like, you know, and we, we paid for it in certain ways, but it wasn't like a direct cost. We were like, we're going to like try to like build the network. It's just like kind of happened. And so that is like a huge thing that we can leverage. And so the way I see it is like, you know, um, you go and get a piece of land and you have a, a vision for like a community. It doesn't need to be a nation state. Um, and you, you start out with something small. I mean, we were in El Salvador, we we're looking at 50 acres. I think we need probably need more than that, but you get a, you know, you mm -hmm. get a small community. And I, 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 my intuition is that everyone is waiting for this, like that there's so many people in our community that, that have families that are like, if there was something where people actually took the risk to come together and be the original pioneers, more would follow, um, is, is kind of my intuition. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that as well. Just, you know, the Sovereign Capital guys were down here visiting El Salvador. They had just, I think they had bought in Prospera as well. And they were kind of, we were pitching this idea of, you know, get 10 people together as the kind of, um, as this founding community group. And it was like weird. They were just like listing out like who would buy into that. It was like incredibly easy to get to 10. It just seems like people are kind of, they haven't been sure where to build and like the necessary condition of like remote work wasn't there until really recently. So just, it seems like kind of a blank slate that can really be launched. Um, yeah, immediately. Cool. So bitmap, it's good to hear your sort of practical considerations. Um, and no runs as well for how this can, uh, jump off. Let's get, you talked earlier about the idea of definite optimism, like knowing exactly what you want from the future and then working to that. So can you tell us in like a network, broader network age sense, uh, including Urbit, uh, what do you want to see uh, one, three, and 10 years from now? Yeah, so I think in like one year, I'd like to see like us really putting down some serious roots. And I think El Salvador is like the obvious choice as like the initial kind of like platform where, cause the way I see this and, and, and what we, you know, have been talking about no run and I is like, this should be a playbook that can be run in other places. And if, and we basically like within a year, if we develop the ability to work with governments and to, you know, go in and to begin to set up roots somewhere, um, and do it in a certain way that like has, you know, a, you know, self-awareness and like the, what we're doing, like, I think in particular, like the work we're doing with the foundation and with, you know, to help the people of El Salvador, like that stuff's super important. So I think like the components right there are, are really good and you create a play, you know, you, you push for legislation that allows to unlock all the powerful technology that like is currently, um, you know, mm. Um, under under attack, so to speak, from nation states. And so you, you go and do that, you prove that out, and then all of a sudden you have a playbook that you can then go, you know, run in other places because ultimately we, you, we would be pretty naive to overly focus on any one area or piece of land or nation or sovereign. And you want to begin to go then spread out and like, look, you see it on Urbit, like the more companies there are, there's competing, the healthier the network is. So as we like go out and, you know, begin to work in more territories with more people, it creates these competitive dynamics and creates these incentives, you know, essentially for governments to do a better job um, governing. And like, I really have like, you know, network age, the definite optimism 
Like that's something we've got to work on. Like really, I think developing what the potential different outcomes would look like in a more definite way. Cause like, I'm not quite there yet. Like it's still largely like abstract, especially like the work that Bology is doing. Um, you know, it's, it's not where I have like a clear vision just yet, but like what I know is like actually just going and trying to build something like we're doing in El Salvador is a hundred percent the right way. And it's going to give you way better return on your time and investment than like thinking about it or like, you know, trying to like, you know, theorize about this thing. Uh, on that note, Bitmap, I think that's a, that's a great way to, to close this on uh, the need for definite optimism. So I want to thank you on behalf of the Network Age for, for being here. This was a, a great episode and awesome to, to hear your story and uh, everything you've been doing. So uh, without further ado, thanks for coming to the Network Age, and we'll see everybody next time. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Love what y'all are doing here. Love having you on, man. Adios. Great to have you. Ciao.